Good afternoon, Metro Augusta. This is Janice Allen Jackson, welcoming you to the June 10th edition of Local Matters, a show designed to make you a more confident voter and a more engaged citizen. Today's show is brought to you by my favorite airport, the Augusta Regional Airport, and my favorite consulting firm, the one I manage, Janice Allen Jackson and Associates, LLC. As you will recall, during last week's show, I was melancholy. As I talked about the events in Minneapolis of May 25th, uh, I was overcome with sadness. And like many of you, I had lost sleep over the things that we watched transpire. This week, I can still say that I'm losing a little sleep, but I am feeling better than I had previously. I'm in the mode now where I feel like we have a long way to go, but I'm hopeful that indeed progress will be made. I have pondered a lot since last week's show, and my conclusions are first that George Floyd did not die in vain. All indications are that significant change will result from his death. Protests have taken place in all 50 states and many countries worldwide. I see this as the 2020 equivalent of the civil rights movement that, that took place in the 1950s and 60s. Just like then, laws changed because citizens exercised their moral authority to demand better. Then and now, I see the same. This show is about civic engagement, and the protests have been the ultimate form of taking charge to improve the quality of life for yourself and your fellow man and woman. My next major conclusion is that coronavirus has helped change the world. I believe one of the reasons that so many people have turned out in protest is first because of the egregious nature of the killing, but also the fact that so many of us were at home to watch it play out on television. People are tired of being cooped up and need an excuse to get out. And four members of the Minneapolis Police Department gave them just that excuse. Yes, I think there would have been protests even if we had not been in a state of uh, quarantine and stay at home orders. But I also believe that that gave people that extra impetus to get out and exercise their rights. They were tired of being in. They were tired of thinking about the world in the way that it has existed. And this gave them a reason to want to get out and change things. Third, I've also come to realize, based upon uh, the Facebook post of one of my uh, friends in law enforcement, somebody that's a retired police officer that worked in law enforcement for a career, one of his posts reminded me that law enforcement is indeed scriptural. I studied Romans 13 verses 1 through 7, which discusses the idea of obeying government authority. Some translations of that scripture also make specific reference to police and the swords or weapons that they carry. What I'm going to share with you today is from Romans 13 verses 1 through 7 in the Living Bible, and it reads as follows. Obey the government, for God is the one who has put it there. There is no government anywhere that God has not placed in power. 
So those who refuse to obey the laws of the land are refusing to obey God and punishment will follow. For the policeman does not frighten people who are doing right, but those doing evil will always fear him. So if you don't want to be afraid, keep the laws and you will get along well. The policeman is sent by God to help you. But if you are doing something wrong, of course you should be afraid, for he will have you punished. He is sent by God for that very purpose. Obey the laws, then for two reasons. First, to keep from being punished, and second, just because you know you should. Pay your taxes, too, for these same two reasons. For government workers need to be paid so that they can keep on doing God's work, serving you. Pay everyone whatever he ought to have. Pay your taxes and import duties gladly. Obey those over you and give honor and respect to all those to whom it is due. As I read that particular translation, uh, it is striking to me that we are so far off from that. All of this that I just read would seem to make sense as long as the police and governing authorities are acting in a way that gives respect and honor to all persons, all citizens like ourselves as well. But unfortunately, we know that has not been the truth. I have to reconcile that with the fact that this passage speaks to what should be rather than what is or what has been. I believe scripture should inform and guide policymaking, and I sincerely hope that the current reforms serve to make these verses more realistic than they have ever been. Fourth, I have also come to realize or come to terms with the fact that the United States has seen policing as the end all and be all of our society. Elected officials at all levels of government are always willing to fund public safety when they won't fund anything else. Congressman Val Demings of Florida, a retired Orlando police chief, has lamented that law enforcement has experienced mission creep, getting into all sorts of things that they were not intended to. And for that, I can provide an explanation. Elected officials are willing to fund public safety at all costs when what is perceived as social services has been forced to accept a no to their funding request in many instances. In law, in a law and order sort of society that America has become, public safety has often squeezed out everything else, which is to say, if you were to treat some issue independently on its own, you probably couldn't get funding for it from a government body populated by elected officials. But if you frame that same service or that same issue under the umbrella of public safety, everybody is willing to fund it because it maintains that law and order sort of uh, thing that is very popular in our country. So as a result of that, you get the type of mission creep that Congressman Demings has spoken of. And again, we get to that same type of society where everything gets funded as long as you can say that it, it, it goes toward a healthier, safer environment for our citizens. As we get past those four points, I want to discuss this idea of defunding. 
You have heard that the Minneapolis, Minnesota City Council has voted to defund the police department. And of course, everybody is then asking, well, what really does defunding a police department mean? As I have read various articles, as I've watched the news, as I've heard even the city council uh, members and city council president there in Minneapolis talk, no one really is sure what that means. Uh, there are a handful of uh, cities in the United States, most notably Camden, New Jersey, that have decided to defund or dismantle their police departments. Uh, but what we find out if you dig a little bit deeper is that while they, quote unquote, disbanded the department, what they did in turn was to establish a new one. Uh, that new one was extremely uh, different uh, from the one that they had before. Uh, there uh, became a new stronger orientation toward what we call community oriented policing, which is in effect just the idea of building relationships and therefore trust with the people that they serve. So the story in Camden related to their defunding and dismantling of their police department is not so much the idea of ending police services as it is uh, building a new police department, starting over from scratch in a way that uh, honors the values that you would expect for a good police department to have. And again, going back to that scriptural foundation we see in Romans 13, uh, the idea that uh, they would become a police department that their citizenry could trust to do business, which unfortunately is completely unlike many of the other police departments that we're aware of in our society now. Now, having thought through all of that, I reflect back on my uh, career in local government and I thought back to conversations that I had probably 20 to 25 years ago. Uh, I was talking to a commissioner who was very frustrated because our police officers were coming in looking for raises. And in a private conversation with him, uh, what he said to me was, I'm about tired of all these police. I'm ready to fire all of them and put a Boy Scout on every corner. Of course, at that time, he didn't ever say that in a public forum, but he did ask if we were becoming some type of police state. Now, as we're looking at conversations today, he looks like a man who was well ahead of his time. And as now, questions that were not safe to ask in public now are. Also around that same time, I recall having conversations with our Recreation and Parks Department director there in Albany. Uh, he would always say when the public safety departments would come in asking for additional resources, he would warn commissioners that a local government can reduce the need for policing by providing more recreation services. He was particularly concerned about young people who didn't have enough to keep them occupied and therefore often wound up in trouble. That brings us to another aspect of this defunding conversation. The proponents of defunding want to shift resources away from law enforcement and into services to people or what we commonly refer to as social services. I've heard a lot of suggestions and I offer for you today in the world, according to Janice, what that shift of resources should look like. First, mental health and substance abuse treatment. Second, job training. 
third, recreation services, and fourth, entrepreneurship training and easy access to business loans. During the time I worked in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, our area mental health director was one of the departments that I oversaw. The director gave me a great education in how our system was in no way equipped to handle the substantial numbers of people who need treatment. In the absence of appropriate facilities, the county jail became the most likely place to house someone with serious mental illness. And how did we wind up with so many mentally ill people in our communities? The answer is a big word that means a lot. It's called deinstitutionalization, which started in the 1950s as drugs were developed to treat such illnesses and went full on in the 1980s as what we called insane asylums were closed in favor of group homes and the like. Many of those who were deinstitutionalized from the nation's public psychiatric hospitals were severely mentally ill. Between 50 and 60 percent of those were diagnosed with schizophrenia. Another 10 to 15 percent were diagnosed with manic depressive illnesses or what we today call bipolar and severe depression. An additional 10 to 15 percent were diagnosed with organic brain diseases such as epilepsy, strokes, Alzheimer's disease and brain damage secondary to trauma. So we have some very ill people who are no longer treated in the way that they used to be treated. And arguably, being in an insane asylum wasn't the best place for everybody. But it kept those people off the streets and therefore not in the law enforcement system. However, between 1980 and 1995, the total number of individuals incarcerated in American jails and prisons increased from roughly half a million to 1.5 million, representing an increase of 216%. And during that same time period, the general population increased by only 16%. So it appears that mentally ill people move from one set of institutions, that is the mental hospitals, into another type of institution, which is jail, which, of course, increased the demand for public safety services in our country. Also, we saw a rise in homeless shelters, something that we heretofore had not seen, but they were necessary to house those people, many of whom suffered from mental illness and substance abuse, who were no longer in institutions and may not be in jail at the moment. Uh, but that homeless shelter was sort of a holding place in between those two locations. Now, as policymakers look at taking uh, re making reform measures, I ask them to look holistically at that. The idea of investing in services which will allow people to become less likely to fall into the criminal justice system is sound. But like most other ideas, it's really expensive. The hope is that mentally healthier people will, with marketable skills will eventually mean governments don't have to spend as much on law enforcement, which in turn will mean that police departments won't have to be as large as they have to be right now. Now, let's turn our attention to the elections that took place on yesterday. Uh, as is not surprising, we are due for runoffs in each one of the contested commission races. The runoffs will take place on August 11th. Um, that is a designated time for our runoff elections in the entire state of Georgia. Uh, having these runoffs is 
a predictable consequence given the large number of candidates in each race and the fact that there were no incumbents in either of those races. The races for districts one and three were particularly close. The top vote getter in district one, for instance, was Michael Thurman, and he only had 129 more votes than the third place finisher, who was Von Pouncey. By Georgia law, the winner has to get at least 50 percent plus one of the vote and only the top two vote getters make the runoff. So Thurman will face Jordan Johnson on August 11th. Over in District 3, three candidates won over 24% of the vote, and the fourth candidate received 19%. That kind of even split is rare, but again, not unpredictable given the fact that there were four candidates running. Sean Mooney will face Katherine Smith McKnight uh, in the runoff for that race. Finally, in the, for the District 9 seat, we had an entirely different story, but the same result, a runoff there too. Uh, Cora Johnson wound up with just a few votes short of winning outright by achieving 49.7% of the vote. Uh, he will face off with uh, challenger Francine Scott uh, for the runoff. Just so you know, in terms of getting prepared for that runoff, uh, a couple of things to make note of. One is that as a voter, you must stick with the party ballot you chose for the main primary. In other words, you can't cast a Democratic ballot in the main primary and then vote in a Republican runoff. Also, please note that if you did not vote in the primary, you may still cast a ballot in the runoff and you can pick the party ballot of your choice. And of course, also note that for the commission races, they, they're all nonpartisan uh, here in Richmond County. Also, uh, please note that if you are not registered to vote as of May 11th, you cannot vote in that runoff. Also, please note in the uh, public safety races, uh, the ones that we featured last week for sheriff, marshal and coroner, the incumbents in all of those races won easily, which is not unexpected. Uh, if you think back to the former office holders in each one of those offices here in Richmond County, they were in place for a long, long time, 20 years plus, I believe, in each case. So um, that is to say that if you win once, if you're not facing an incumbent, or even sometimes if you are in the case with Mr. Lampkin for Marshall, um, but it's easier if you're not facing an incumbent, you win once. If you do a decent job, you're able to get back in uh, without much trouble. So uh, we have all three of those incumbents returning in those races. And as far as I know, they don't have any uh, opposition in the general election in November. So it appears that they will be in. So if you're one of these uh, candidates that is headed for the runoff uh, on October, on August the 11th, uh, let's talk a little bit about what they will be doing uh, between now and then. Uh, political theory goes that the smart candidates will meet with their opponents who did not make the runoff to seek their endorsements. It is very important to get those endorsements because you hope that those will be people who um, uh, will be told, though those uh, former candidates who are no longer in the race, uh, the hope is that they would go out 
talk to their supporters and persuade those supporters to in turn support the person that they're going to endorse. So generally speaking, uh, what I would expect is those for those six candidates that are uh, coming into the runoff on August 11th, uh, they'll be out talking to the others who were in those races in the uh, District 1 race. There are three uh, who won't be in the runoff, three candidates who didn't make it in District 3. There are two candidates who didn't make it. District 9, there are three who didn't. So those folks who made the top two will be out talking to the others to try to get their endorsements and get their support. One of the other things they'll be doing that during that time period is keeping their bases energized. Uh, it's one thing to get out to vote when there are a bunch of offices on the ballot, as there were this time. Um, that is pretty standard for those folks to get out um, the first time because there's so many races that they have interest in. However, if you get to uh, the ballot and there are only a few offices on it, people are less likely to get out and vote, particularly when uh, there's some obstacles to voting. Um, there's some people who are not going to be interested in going into the polls and that sort of thing uh, because of COVID-19. It may stand to be much more difficult to get folks uh, to, to turn out. So uh, those candidates who've made the runoff uh, will be trying real hard to make sure that their supporters understand the significance of heading uh, out to the polls one more time. Uh, they'll also likely be trying to do a little fundraising, uh, doing some heavy campaigning. Uh, it's the time to pull out all the stops. Uh, ironically, of the six that have made uh, the runoff, uh, most of them uh, did really substantial fundraising. Uh, as we discussed previously, some of these candidates raised over $20,000 for these races. Uh, the irony is that one of the candidates, the leading vote getter in District 9, actually had one of the lowest fundraising totals of anybody there. So anybody who was running for any of the offices, in fact. So uh, this is a time for them to look at uh, redoubling their fundraising efforts, making sure that they can do everything possible uh, to reach you, the voters, uh, via um, uh, robocalls, via signs, via radio ads, TV ads. Um, these days, of course, people are very much dependent upon social media. Uh, so uh, check out uh, opportunities. I'm sure there will be opportunities to see uh, some of them doing video presentations and that sorts of things on social media. Uh, these days, uh, getting a nice polished video goes a long way in terms of help, helping a candidate spread his or her message. So uh, we will take note of them doing all of those things, I'm sure, over the next few weeks in order to persuade you uh, to, to provide your support to them. Another thing that I noted in regard to the elections is how many people voted. As you think about it, Augusta has a population of roughly 200,000. Uh, there are eight districts, which means each district is roughly 25,000 people. And that's not just adults. That includes children, um, as well as adults. So some of those 25,000 people are not going to be eligible to vote simply by virtue of their age. However, if you think about the numbers, each district having roughly 25,000 residents, 
uh, in District 1. The total number of votes cast for that commission seat was 3,868. Whereas, by contrast, in District 3, the total number of voters was over 6,600. That means that a higher percentage of voters in District 3 went to the polls, a higher percentage of residents. That's not say voters because we don't know how many of them actually registered in each one of those districts. But a higher number of residents of District 3 went to the polls than did the residents of District 1. That is something for us to always think about. Um, it is good to get registered to vote, but it doesn't work unless you actually exercise that right to vote. And you think this was a relatively high profile election um, because there were so many offices on the ballot. So please, uh, people, and from there, as I discussed earlier, the challenge for the August 11th runoff is to get as many people as possible to come to the polls. Uh, and some of these districts have started with low turnouts already. So uh, please keep that in mind that a, a very small number of people can get somebody elected to a body that is making huge decisions. Likewise, if we look at Super District 9, uh, which represents half the county, roughly 100,000 people, 16,367 votes were cast in, in Super District 9 in that race. So that means that 16,000 people made a decision for 100,000. So uh, please think through that. Uh, again, exercise your right to vote. Take a uh, advantage of the opportunities to get to know the candidates so that you can make decisions that are good ones for you, your neighborhood, your community. In the upcoming weeks, we've got some equally interesting shows. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to create some opportunities for uh, those six candidates who are in the runoffs to come back to the show to talk a little bit more about their vision uh, and give you an idea of what it is they bring to the table to serve you with. Uh, also, uh, we've next week I'm going to take a little bit of a detour. Uh, we've been so heavily involved with uh, the elections and getting prepared for that, that I haven't spoken as much about the census process as uh, I was earlier. Uh, as you all may know, the self-response period for the census has been extended until the end of October. So we've got some time to work on that, but it's still uh, just as important as it was at the uh, outset of that process. So next week, we're going to talk census. The following week, I think we're going to talk some about health disparities. Uh, and then a week after that, uh, we'll probably just take another look at where we are with respect to uh, reform of our police system, see what the thinking has been on a nationwide level uh, and where we are with that uh, and zero in on some of the policy changes that we would expect uh, to happen as a result of everything that we've seen over the last few weeks. Uh, again, we appreciate you being with us. We love you listening to the show here on WKZK. However, if you are not able to uh, listen on Wednesday afternoons at 1.30, 
There's always the opportunity to listen to the show uh, via SoundCloud. Uh, that is just soundcloud.com slash local matters podcast. Uh, you can go there. You'll see my profile uh, and you'll see all the shows that I've recorded since March 4th when I went on this little venture. Uh, so we encourage you to follow me there on SoundCloud. We encourage you to share the shows with those in your network who are interested in uh, civic affairs um, because we really do want to emphasize how important it is that you learn what to do when you get in that booth. You know, a lot of times we'll look at questions, we'll skip questions um, because we don't have a good idea of what the appropriate answer or response is. And I just want to get you to the point where you uh, can make up your mind and make good decisions for yourself. As always, in closing, I share with you 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This show is designed to contribute to each of those, giving you the power that comes with knowledge, demonstrating love for your local community, and offering you wisdom for decision-making to ensure that you possess a sound mind when it comes to these topics. Tune in next Wednesday, WKZK, at 1.30 p.m. Because Local Matters.